Welcome to the Reader House Author Roundtable, where authors from all walks of life come together to discuss the trials, tribulations, and triumphs of publishing their books. I'm Alice Stockton-Rossini. Join us here every Saturday night at 8 o'clock or listen to our podcast anytime on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, and PodServe, just to name a few. The Author Roundtable is sponsored by Reader House Online Bookstore, where independent new authors come first. Mariev Rugo was born in Bucharest, Romania in 1934. She lived in five countries, including Great Britain during the Blitz, managed to escape to America during World War II, and lived to tell her amazing story in her book, What Happened? You were reluctant to write this book at first, weren't you? Well, I'd been thinking for a long time of doing it, but I thought, oh, well, who would be interested, blah, blah, blah. And then I had a friend, and she said, you know, you should write this book. You should write it because it's very interesting and all these things happen to you. And so I eventually did just take her advice. And I wrote it in the last four or five years. It begins in Bucharest, Romania. That's where my family came from. And... I was born there and lived there until the Second World War came. And my family was Jewish, so my grandfather lived by chance next to the German ambassador. And the ambassador called him up one day and he said, Listen, Mihai, which is a Romanian for Michael, he said, Listen, Mihai, you have to leave. You have to leave Bucharest. And he told him why. And he told him what the Germans were planning to do with the Jews. So my grandfather sent money all over the world. He had a great deal of money. What did he do? He built railroads that were based in in Romania, but went all over Europe. And that was where his money came from. So he sent your money all around the world, and then how did he get you guys out of there? Well, he had to go very quickly because he was in great danger. He was on Hitler's blacklist. Hitler wanted him very badly. So he went to America alone, and uh, it was very, at that time, it was the war had begun, and it was extremely dangerous to go across the Atlantic. But he he did, and he was lucky, and he survived. And then he sent for my grandmother. My grandmother stood up with him because he was such a ladies' man, and she wouldn't go with him. So she went to England, and he ordered my mother and my nurse, who was a very important person in my life. I'll tell you about her. Anyway, he ordered us to go to England and stay with Granny. And we did. And so we spent the war being bombed, which was somewhat noisy and unpleasant. Mm. And uh, I'm very glad that I've never been in another war. How old were you? I had my fifth birthday on the day Hitler marched into Poland, which was in 1939. We lived in England, and we lived in London most of the time. And it was horrific bombing and stuff. But I had in my life the most important 
person until my children came along was my nurse. She had been born in Ireland, in the north of Ireland, and then had gone to a school called the Norland Institute, which was a place that trained young women to take care of children. And they were very, very expensive and did wonderful job with the children. And Nurse was just amazing. I loved her until she died, and she loved me. We really had a wonderful relationship, magical. How long did you stay in England? My grandfather wanted us to come to America as soon as part of the war was over, but he couldn't get us. The war ended in 1945, and um, he couldn't get us a passage anywhere. All his money couldn't get us a passage. And so he bought a banana cargo boat, if you can believe this, and turned it into a passenger boat and had bought a house at 4 East 77th Street in New York and had turned it into apartments waiting for his family to come. And all the family went there, and we all lived in 4 East 77th Street. And the way Mummy Nurse and I got there was on the boat, this boat that he bought. There were other passengers on it too. And while we were on the boat, the war actually did end with the Japanese part of the war ended. Pearl Harbor? Pearl Harbor and that whole business. You were so lucky to get out. Oh, indeed. And my mother met her second husband. My my family went in for lots of marriages. <laughs> my father had, I think, five women that he married. And my mother had three husbands. Oh, jeez. Three or four. Her first husband, not my father, the next one, was in the fleet air arm, which is the Naval Air Force. And he was younger than she was and extremely handsome. And I adored him and he loved me. And he, it was just a wonderful relationship. And then one day he was out flying and the Germans shot him down. Mm. And that was terrible. I've never recovered from it. I just adored him. His name was Mervyn. And I absolutely adored him. So by the time you got to New York, how old were you? I was, uh, so I must have been about 10. So you remember this all pretty clearly. Oh, yeah, I remember very clearly. And then when you came to New York, was it difficult for you? No, my family was here. And I loved my family. I mean, the first school I went to was horrible. It was a dreadful experience. A girl offered to throw me down a flight of stairs if I didn't do something or other, which I can't remember what it was. And then I went to a convent school for a number of years. And that wasn't a great deal of fun either. <laughs> Although I have had a friend there who was um, spoke French. And I, of course, spoke French too. And um, we sort of had a good time because nobody else knew what we were saying. <laughs> 
but you were really lucky. I mean, compared to what a lot of other people went through, you were very lucky. You you were able to, you know, you had a place to go and you were able to live through the war. And then when you came to the United States, did you feel welcome? Well, uh, it was complicated, yes. It, yeah. Um, the family was a very complicated business. And, uh, <laughs> they didn't like each other. My mother and her sister hated each other and had it for many, many years. And that was the sort of unpleasant environment that I lived in. Right. And uh, my mother, I think, hated me. And uh, she was quite cruel, very cruel to me. And that was a part of my life that was very difficult. But then I had nurse, and I could go to nurse, and she would calm me and make me feel okay and tell me I was wonderful, and <laughs> uh, which of course I wasn't, but it was very soothing right. the way she treated me. And my mother, the things my mother said to me were really unbelievable. Uh, she told me I was, she told me I was very ugly. And I, I believed her. And it's not true. I'm not really ugly. I, <laughs> I, I modeled and when I was in New York, and I had a lot of men and friends. And, you know, I was not ugly. And when I went to Rome and she was dying, I went to see her. She said to me, you know, I've, you always say too much, and I've never trusted you. Oh, my gosh. And those were her, her final words to me, were, I've never trusted you. Oh, I'm so sorry. And that hurt, and I've, you know, I've never forgotten it. But you, you know, you soldiered on and became very successful. Well, I was, and I have lots of friends, and I get on well with people, and I have the, these divine children. Although that too is a tragedy because I have identical twin daughters who are the joy of my life. And I had a son and I, I adored him too. And then he died. Oh, I'm so, jeez. Before he was, just before he was 50, he was living in Barranquilla in Colombia. With, and he died there. Oh. And then his wife brought his ashes up to be buried with his father. And they're buried here in Boston. So you ended up going to Radcliffe College? Yes, I did. And then... Radcliffe College. And then I ended up teaching at Brown and other places. It was a great life. I've had a wonderful life, except for my mother. Right. Who was seriously not pleasant. Is there any particular message? I think the most important thing about my life was the fact that I survived it. I survived the war. I survived my mother. I survived my stepfather's death, which was a terrible thing for me. And then I survived Nurse's death. I adored Nurse, and she stayed with us until she went home to Ireland, and she, she had a house there, and she lived there for a few years, and then she died. She was old, and 
that was a catastrophe for me and still is. I miss her terribly. Uh, at this point, are you interested in, you know, selling your book? Oh, yeah, I'm going to do it. I, I, I was rather sick just about the time that the book came out. I mean, very sick. And I am now not sick again. I'm fine. And uh, I am going to sell. I live in a community for the aged. Okay. And gave two lectures on my books, poetry books, and read from them. And then I gave my uncle, my mother's sister's husband, one of the leading art dealers in New York after the end of the war. And he he was very famous, a very big deal. So I gave a lecture about him. So I will do that with the book, my book too. I haven't done it yet, but I'm thinking of how to do it. All right. Well, you have some story there. <laughs> and I'm really happy that you're you're able to share it with me. And, you know, I hope you can share it with a lot of other people. Well, I hope so, too. We'll see. I'll do my best. <laughs> All right. You gonna you gonna keep writing? I'm not sure. You know, I'm eight, I was 89 my last birthday. I'm not sure that I am have it in me much more to write to, from the beginning, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I yeah. can change uh, my work, but I can not sure I can write. Well, you never know. You never know. Maybe I'll get lucky one of these days. (laughs) It was a pleasure talking to you. And uh, it was a pleasure being able to talk to you. Thank you so much for asking me. You have a great day. Okay. Thank you so much. You began it well. All right. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. After writing academically and professionally as a CPA for years, Mitt Yelrub wanted to try his hand at writing something more artistic. And from that came his book, The Boarding House. So it seems there was a little soul searching going on here. Well, I had previously written some poetry, but I've always enjoyed poetry. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, nothing with, with uh, the goal of developing the skill. When I started to write these stories... It was really to see if I could develop the skill and um, learn more about what is needed to tell a good story. Yeah. How did you develop the skill? Did you take a class or did you just practice? Well, try to emulate what you see. I mean, I enjoy reading and uh, I, I know what stories appeal to me. And if you look at the dedication of the book, it's really to three people um, that I consider very good storytellers. So in, in that sense, it inspires me. But like anything, you look at it and you say, well, why does it have that effect on you? I know what it is, but why does it work? So I tried to see if I could, if you like, develop some of those elements in myself and in my own writing. So really what I set out to do was just to practice and wrote these short stories. So I wanted to see if I could write something that was suspenseful, something that was funny, something that was reflective, something that was erotic. And I, I didn't have an intent or purpose in writing a book. It was more just to write a story to test and develop 
skill, if you like. And um, finally, I got to about a dozen stories, and I thought, well, let's let's put these together in a book, and uh, we'll we'll publish it. Of course, it's self-published, uh, but um, uh, I wanted to put it out there and see what kind of response I would get. Who were your inspirations? Were they writers we know? People I enjoy reading, again, more in the uh, entertainment or fictional world. Um, I like the Jack Reacher novels. Oh. I like um, Harlan Coben, particularly the uh, Myron Bolitar uh, character. Um, so those kind of characters are appealing to me. Uh, almost embarrassed to admit it. I like to read J.D. Robb's, uh, her stories about death in, you know, and there's always, uh, you know, something like brothership and in silence and in some context she puts death. And it's a kind of a futuristic um, view of, uh, of a police detective, <laughs> Lieutenant Eve Dallas. But uh, I love Nelson DeMille. Um, he's a good writer. Uh, Neil Gaiman. Okay. Uh but uh, I guess one can only hope to emulate. Yeah, right. Where did the boarding house come from? It, 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 it was a vehicle by which I could, you know, in which I could park all of these stories. Okay. Because like I say, I didn't write the stories uh, with sort of a comprehensive view in mind. I wrote them as little experiments. And the idea of a boarding house uh, appealed to me uh, because then I could situate, you know, local characters, people that were coming and going, um, different things, because, you know, that's a very transient uh, scene, yeah. if you like. So there, there wasn't anything other than, like I say, finding a, a location that I could uh, park all of these stories and, and kind of bring them together under that roof, yeah, metaphorically. Do you tie the stories together or do they each stand alone? Well, they can stand alone. Um, some of them have some connectivity uh, through the characters, uh, particularly the characters that are local to the town. But the book's really more about just uh, relationships and how people relate to each other, how they relate to their stories about a dog, uh, their stories about relating to nature. So it's it's really about relationships. Where is this boarding house? Well, the boarding house, what I did was I reimagined the home that I grew up in. It wasn't a boarding house, but... I reimagined it as if it were, um, and it, the the fictional town is again the town I grew up in. That's reimagined. It's a small town, kind of a semi-rural, uh, but it you know it's a town of five thousand people surrounded by farms. There's an interstate highway that goes through it. It's about three miles from one of the Great Lakes. Okay, you'd call it small town. Right. Yeah. One of the things that I did with some purpose and intent was I you can read the book and you will never know the name of the narrator or the narrator's wife. She's always referred to as the wife. <laughs> so those are two characters that have no names. And then the the other characters more or less express attitudes 
There are uh, two stories. They're day one and day two, fishing with Jim and Larry. Now, Jim and Larry are actual people that are friends of mine that I do fish with. So there is some drawing on on uh, personal experience. But most of the characters and most of the the stories are, are uh, you know, pure fiction. Um, experience kind of contributes to maybe context. There's a story called Partaking, where a guest arrives at the house and uh, the narrator has just come in from being outdoors and there was a, a terrible storm brewing and the storm literally put the fear of God in him. So he starts to uh, talk to this guest as he's starting a fire in the fireplace about um, what the fear of God means to him. And they discuss that a little bit. And then they get discussing the purpose of this guest visit to the area. And he basically was a, a sailor in the Navy, joined the Merchant Marine. And um, he's now looking and researching his family history. And he talks about his experiences as uh, a sailor and a merchant marine and partaking in the sea and the ship and the crew and how it was a unified experience. But he didn't feel united to his family um, because he had spent so much of his life at sea. But uh, he was looking for that and that connectivity. But the tone that gets into the racial dynamic of this is a black man who doesn't feel like he's partaking or participating in the fabric of American culture. Hmm. So there's a couple of themes that run through it, but the overarching theme is, you know, what does it mean to partake or to participate in something? And when do you feel really connected? So I use the examples of his connection with his uh, with the sea and his crew and his ship and how that doesn't manifest in his partaking in the idea of our great country. And that theme, some of those themes continue to run through the various stories in the book. Themes like that, not necessarily that theme, but the the idea of, of partaking can be seen in other stories like in some of the fishing stories, I talk about the narrator's connection to nature and what his relationship with nature is and how that uh, is something that, you know, we take and take and take from nature, but we're never demanded a recompense. Or are we, you know, does, does nature take something back from us? So um, that's, a, that's a partaking or a participating and it being sort of a, a two-way view that we have to consider. Nice. Are you doing anything to promote it? Uh, just just starting. Um, uh, I intend to leverage the contacts that I already have, either personally on Facebook or professionally, on things like LinkedIn to draw people's attention to the fact that there's a book and that there's this author out there that you know, um, some better than others, and then draw them to those social media aspects so that I can regularly communicate with them. Um, we've developed some content, and you know, perhaps this interview could be recorded and posted on it. 
but there's there's other content. There's a YouTube video. Um, posting one or two stories or other stories that I wrote that aren't in the book are ideas to get uh, people to look at, you know, perhaps pique their interest. But first, I have to get them to the website. And that's that's where I need to to build a little bit of traffic first. All right. Well, feel free to post this interview wherever you want. All right. All right. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me. Yeah, well, thank you. Go get them. Bye-bye. Peter Tolheim is a man of many talents, a lawyer, construction company owner, and now he turns his attention to writing. He's written six books for publishers under the Reader House umbrella. He's working on a seventh, and today we're talking about his latest publication, 100 Questions After the Killing of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, The Chicago Tragedy. What's the backstory here? I am on the NAACP Executive Committee in Stanford, Connecticut. And after the George Floyd killing, and then the demonstrations and protests, my president asked me to write a two-pager for his Caucasian friends explaining how one, as a white person, could combat structural racism or systemic racism. And from where I sat, that was uh, pretty straightforward. Uh, not an easy task, but straightforward. And so I came up with about 100 rhetorical questions, which I knew the answers to, and shared it with the executive committee. They passed it around and they came back with, so why don't you put in the solutions you think and put into chapters? Uh, long story short, that's what we have here. You can't see it. It's about 275 pages, right? And, and the neat thing about these 100 questions is you don't have to go from the top and say, I got to read one, two. You can just pick any one, any question. And in fact, uh, you could almost say, oh, let's do a class on it. We'll just pick, pick, a, pick a number, Right. And each number is, is worthy, in my opinion, of a discussion. I would like to read you just one paragraph from question number 55. You know, here it's 2023, and we uh, kind of forget a little bit now what all these people get up on their soapboxes back in 2020, you know, saying how they're going to change the world and make things better, right? Which I think a lot, a lot of people have forgotten, in my opinion. So this kind of captures it in a way, and I'll just, you know, because the word Black Lives Matter became a, a, something in the common parlance back then. Uh, we still have it, but we don't talk about it as much. Anyway, here we go on uh, the first paragraph. It goes, do you believe Black Lives Matter? It is certainly hoped that you do. This is not a competition of one life over another. Social justice is not a competition. Black Lives Matter can be a simple expression that the life of a Black citizen does matter and not get caught up with the political orthodoxy of some extreme groups. After the killing of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, how will anything change? The risk is that nothing happens for all the people mounting their personal soapboxes to let the world know how enlightened they are. Don't tell me how woke you are. Tell me that you will eliminate and reduce all the structural statism barriers mentioned above that stand in the way of Blacks in particular and everyone else in general. What barriers will you remove to allow the poor to get their foot on the first rung of the ladder of success? Don't keep raising up that first rung or removing it entirely so that the citizen can't even get their foot on the ladder of success, but instead is relegated to a lifetime of dependence on the state. If you fail to take those barriers down, then you would appear to be so attached to your past political preferences that you have created much of what is structural statism, and you are too proud to admit error and remove your past contribution to structural racism. Anyway, so 
it's kind of the idea that social justice is not a competition. We're not trying to say my cause is more worthy than your cause. You know, this balancing, uh, and what, you know, who, who's the louder voice, who should get the greater attention. I think the concept of Black Lives Matter is significant. And then if I could encapsulate, how I've encapsulated, we can't see the cover. The cover has on it, you may remember from seventh grade, this idea of a Venn diagram, V-E-N-N, -N, two circles, how do they intersect, right? And what do they hold in common? And on the cover, there's a blue oblong circle of structural statism. And then there's another circle called racism. And how much do they overlap? Well, there's a part outside of structural statism, which is just, you know, the dirty, just somebody who doesn't like somebody because of their race. That's not what this book is about. I'm not going to touch that. But the whole idea of systemic racism, structural statism, is the part of racism that particularly impacts, let's say, uh, people of color. All right. So structural statism is the hurdles, burdens, and barriers that the state puts in the way of the citizen to get an education, get a job, start a business, run a business, put a roof over their head, put food on the plate of their children, and pursue happiness as they see fit. Now, as Blacks have one-eighth, that's right, one-eighth the net worth of whites, every hurdle is higher, every burden heavier, and every barrier thicker. And so we have to look how we make the life of the poor who are overrepresented amongst Blacks more difficult. Why do we make it more expensive to build a house? People talk about housing shortage, but how much longer does it take to actually apply and get permission to build a house now versus 20 years ago? I mean, I was a builder from like 1995 till 2020, and it has increased markedly. And how many more minimums do we require of a house that makes it that much more expensive? And how are we doing a favor to the poor when we push home ownership that much further away? So those are some of the questions that are covered in the 100 Questions book. The other part of the 100 Questions book is something known as the Chicago tragedy, which I actually start the book with. I'd already worked on the Chicago tragedy before. Uh, I was tasked with writing things that Caucasians might consider to reduce structural statism, systemic racism. And the Chicago tragedy is our silence on the daily violent death of young black men, boys, and bystanders nationwide. There was a handy statistic for Chicago, like 2016, where basically two young men were dying every day of violent death. Two men. In a week's time, that's 14 young men gone. Other cities have a higher, um, let's say, murder rate. Uh, but it's so tough for young black men that the Centers for Disease Control, the statistics, it's almost 50% of the cause of death for men between like 16 and 20 and then 20 and 24 was a violent death. And then the next like 30% was like suicide and accident. And usually we expect cause of death is, I don't know, leukemia or some sort of cancer, you know, not a 50% of violent death. I give you an example. This past month, October 3, there was a shooting at Morgan State University. And five people were injured. Fortunately, nobody died. And it was during homecoming week. And uh, Morgan State is a historically black college and university. And it would be easier to talk about what happened by labeling it 
the Chicago tragedy, because then we would know. Uh, it turns out, we don't know how it's going to end up, but the first person they arrested was a 17-year-old. Now, it's unlikely the 17-year-old was a student at Morgan State. Okay. The second person they're looking for is an 18-year-old. That would have been right on the cusp of maybe being a student. It was suggested uh, that by the police that the five people who were shot were not the intended targets. It was somebody that the 17, 18-year-old were looking for. And this is the part of the Chicago tragedy, which are the bystanders. You know, a baby in a carriage, somebody sleeping in their house, and a straight bullet goes through the wall and they get injured. And so the Chicago tragedy, it's a tragedy because it happens every day. If you add it up, how it happens all across the nation for young Black, is it 11 people a day? You know, but the only time our major media wants to talk about it is if guns are involved because then they want to talk about mass shooting and guns. But if a gun isn't involved and it's a knife and a young black man dies, not interested. It doesn't serve the narrative. And that's the silence part that um, it's only newsworthy as gun violence. It's not newsworthy that it's young black men and boys dying at a very high rate. Anyway, so these are uh, some of the questions put forth in the 100 Questions book. And then um, there was another topic I had to do a quick paragraph on after Chicago tragedy part, which was the abortion rate for Black women, which is much more significant in its um, impact on the Black community because that ran at something like 30,000 babies a year. So it's like 1,000 children a day because the birth, the abortion rate for black women is about five times that for white women. Let me ask you this. What's the intent of this book? It sounds like it should be in a classroom. It it sounds like it should be a course. Again, you can pull a question and just use that for that day. Finally got to arrange a book talk in, uh, out in Chappaquiddick on Martha's Vineyard this summer. I figured that would be good. A lot of cerebral people there. And it, it was, what can I say? What can I say? We get stuck in our political preferences, right? The way we'd like to have the story come out. So I suggested as a builder, look, one of the things we could do is we could bring the building code back to 1970. You know, it was easier to build a house. In fact, the house is built in 1955 and Connecticut didn't have a state building code. In fact, today in 2023, there's no building code in Vermont for single family residences. Now, a town might have its own building code on their own, but nobody stops renting an Airbnb in Vermont because they've never had a state building code for single code for single family residences. Yeah, one one entrance might be a little low. You hit your head on it once, you kind of remember that. But the houses aren't falling down. Anyway. So this kind of surprised me, but in retrospect, didn't surprise me. I said, we should bring the building code back to 1970. Keep improvements in um, energy efficiency uh, and fire safety. Okay. And one woman, much older, says, oh, well, then they wouldn't get as good a house. Like somehow you're shortchanging somebody because you haven't loaded up with all these requirements. I'm like, wait. You're trying to make it more affordable because if the person can't even get the house, why am I doing them a favor? 
if I make a house 20% more expensive, it, it, it's kind of patronized and say, we well, get the house, it's got to be a really good house with the latest, because that's part of what happens with the code. Our manufacturers work the engineers to get their products put into the code. So we have to buy their product anyway. All good questions, Peter, that certainly give us some food for thought. Thanks so much for joining me today on Zoom. Appreciate that, Alice. Thank you. Aditan A. Afolabi came to the U.S. from Nigeria 25 years ago, and she has accomplished so much in such a short period of time, not the least of which was pulling from her own life experience as a therapist and working with kids to write her book, Never Too Late. Any reason why you wrote this book now? Um, when the COVID-19 hit, everybody had to sit at home. I've always wanted to write. But, you know, procrastination, I'll start and then I'll discard it. But this time around, when we were forced to sit at home, I started writing this book. There was one I was writing before, which was a cultural uh, book. It has to do with women and some cultural things. So I looked at it. I said this, the, the, the audience will be very uh, minimal. So let me do something that everybody can benefit from. So I started writing this book. And this time around, I made sure that I finished it. <laughs> I was once a school teacher. And then I started, I, I worked as a, as a therapist and meeting people, looking at the things that people go through, most especially in school, what teenagers go through in their adolescent period, when they have issues of bullying, getting involved in criminal, petty criminal activities and so on and so forth that you see in schools. So when I looked at this incomparable with uh, what I did as a therapist, I said, let me write something that everybody can benefit from. Youths alike, adults alike. Most students come to school and you can see that they, they have a little bit of neglect. The parents are not there. Maybe they've gone to work. They didn't see them leaving home in the morning and so on and so forth. And then the supervision is not so thorough. And when these things happen, they begin to misbehave in school, begin to bully other students. So those are the, the things that made me have that inspiration to write the book. What's it about? Is it about a particular person or a group of people? Uh, they are teenagers in the high school, and um, I based it on four teenagers. There's a particular one which is really very good. She's a, an all-rounder student, studios, well-mannered, and from a very good home. The upbringing was fine. And there are these three other girls who are from upscale home, very rich and affluent families. And they didn't like this particular girl. And the girl is really nice to everybody. But they, this particular girl chose her out because of jealousy, because of the fact that she's very brilliant, she's beautiful, she dresses well, and then she decided, I'm going to make like miserable for her. And then there are these other two wannabes. They loved this other girl, which is uh, Gina. They loved her. 
and they wanted to be part of whatever she was doing. So they joined her, they became like a clique, and they started bothering this other girl. And because of that, their academic performance went drastically down. While the good girl was swearing academically in terms of sportsmanship and so on and so forth, they were just going down the drain. And she kept getting accolades every day for being good and they were not getting anything. So by the time they left school, there was nowhere for them to go. They didn't pass their SAT. They couldn't go into any college. They refused to go to community college and they refused to work because their parents are rich. And this other lady went into the university, started doing well in school. And because these other three girls were not able to get into any school, they started roaming the streets and criminal activities started gradually and gradually they ventured into drug use and so on. And their lives skyrocketed from there down in the downward, uh, downward trend. So this good girl is the one that became the saving grace for these three ladies. Their lives went the negative direction and eventually she was the one that picked them one after the other and put them straight and eventually they were able to go to school go to college and uh, eventually graduate nice what a, what a great book for teenagers yeah teenagers and uh, adults alike because um there's a situation of uh, domestic violence, there's uh, neglect from parents, absentee parenthood, and so on. Uh, our, the parents need to be very, very involved in the lives of their children. I know we all have to work, but we have to juggle between work and raising our children. If we are not there and out there making money, the money we make, will show outwardly on the child, but the upbringing, which is supposed to be the innate tra trait in the child will be missing. It's so true. Now you're getting some help spreading the word about your book, right? I have a snow tree media doing the advertisements and so on. And uh, Fulton books that published it are the ones who took care of all the, uh, all, all the media aspects through uh, Snow Tree Media. And I'm also putting words out. And through, through the interview too, it's word out. I've been to the library close to my house. Mm -hmm. I have talked to the librarian there and they already gave me the email to the Hillsborough County Public Library, which I already sent an email to them. I've also went, I've gone to um, Barnes and Nobles and I already uh, talked to the manager and uh, he already scheduled that sometimes in January, I'll be able to do a signing event at the, at the bookstore. Good for you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. You're going to keep writing? Yes, I surely will keep writing. Right. Uh, the one that I abandoned to finish this one, I'm going to go back to that. And then there's going to be a sequel to this story because uh, we all need perseverance and resilience to be able to move on in life. Second chances are available to everybody. There are endless opportunities for everyone 
to 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 harness and uh, people don't do the harness all these opportunities because they don't have enough people to give them support support system is very important if this lady did not support the three the three girls they won't be able to achieve anything and um we all need the support system, both from the community, from our parents, from wherever we worship, maybe the church, the mosque, anywhere we go to, we need support system and people to help us to achieve what we can achieve in life. Oh, hear, hear. I believe. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it was a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Alice. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. You're a real inspiration, I'll tell you that. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. We hope you enjoyed this edition of the Reader House Author Roundtable, where authors from all walks of life come together to discuss the trials, tribulations, and triumphs of publishing their books. I'm Alice Stockton Rossini. We hope to see you back here every Saturday night at 8 o'clock or listen to our podcast anytime on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, and PodServe, just to name a few. The Author Roundtable is sponsored by Reader House Online Bookstore, where independent new authors come first.